You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. Well, as we've been talking about, uh, this week, Russia launched a full invasion of an attack on Ukraine. And as I've read the news and watched the video clips from Ukraine and listened to the experts and and read the articles, I've been reminded of how devastating and horrifying war is. War creates a climate of fear and instability because attack is imminent. War creates an environment of grief and sadness as people are separated from their loved ones or lose their loved ones through conflict. War even changes the very landscape of a place. When we think about the way that the bombs and the artillery pockmark a city, tear down buildings, it makes a place feel unsafe and unwelcoming. What is more is that some wars have far-reaching effects and implications for the well-being of the whole world. Now, it's, it's one thing to see conflicts in the geopolitical sphere between nations, but it's another thing to see conflicts and wars raging in the church sphere between Christians. In our passage for today, the Apostle James gives us an important reminder of just how devastating and horrifying war is. Whether it's our theological wars over the teaching of scripture, or culture wars over the ethos of the church, or worship wars over the music of the church, or skirmishes that take place over petty issues, James wants us to see what is at stake in our conflicts in the church. Our wars in the church create a climate of fear and instability, stealing our focus away from the glory of God to defeating our opponents. Mm -hmm. War in the church creates an environment of grief and sadness as people are separated from their loved ones or even lose close relationships in a conflict. Our wars in the church change the very landscape of our place, making our churches feel unwelcoming and unsafe for our neighbors. What's more is that wars in the church have far-reaching implications for the flourishing and the well-being of the world. When we find ourselves more occupied with winning our battles than loving our neighbors. Today we're going to talk about faith and conflict. We're going to talk about faith and conflict from James chapter 4 verses 1 through 10. If you haven't been with us, we have been working through the book of James, an exposition, a development of the book of James to get across the teaching of this of this book. And and today we come to faith and conflict. And we're going to approach this text through two points where we see the pathology of conflict and the pathway of communion. These are our two points, the pathology of conflict and the pathway 
of communion. So let's look at this first point, the pathology of conflict. Now, in the passage that Pastor Joel preached to us last week from James chapter 3, we learned that there is an intimate relationship between the wisdom from above and peace. This subject then leads James to address the power struggles, conflicts, and hostilities that plagued the church and disrupt its peace and purity. Mm -hmm. And he leads off with this rhetorical question in verse 1. Take a look. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? James says, why do y'all fight? And if you were to pose this question to the average Christian, you might get answers like this. Because he let me down. That's why we're fighting. Because she is nitpicky and I'm tired of it. Because he is insensitive and I've had enough. Because I'm being misunderstood. Because work and parenting are stressful. That's why this whole thing is blown up. That's why we're in conflict. Because work and parenting is stressful. Because he doesn't get it. We have our own ideas when it comes to conflict. But in this text, James develops a pathology of conflict. Pathology in the medical world is when doctors look at cells, tissue, or organs to figure out what went wrong. What disease is present and what's the diagnosis? And in this way, James is giving us a close examination of the conflicts and the quarrels and the hostilities in the church to help his people to understand what has gone wrong in a war-torn church, a church marked by conflict, a church marked by division. So we need to look at the way this develops. If we read the rest of the verse, this is what it says, verses 1 through 2. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. The first item on the apostles' pathology of conflict, this pathology report, is conflicting desires or passions that are waging war within each of us. And James here teaches us that the battles that rage among us stem from the battles that rage within us. The, the social battles result from the individual battle within. And the primary sinful desire that each of us carries within us is the desire to get what we want when we want it. Yeah. James traces social conflict to the inward, misdirected, and ruling desires in each of us when we're in conflict with another. For example, when person A has a ruling desire for control, and person B has a ruling desire for freedom, you get conflict. James uses the language of war in this passage. 
This was military language to describe conflicts that went on in the world at the time. This was specifically militaristic language. And James doesn't see our conflicts and our disagreements as just, just minor things. He says that this is like war in God's church. And it's been said that few wars are as sad as civil wars. Civil wars. This language that James uses, this war language he uses to describe conflict, is general enough to fit all of our conflicts, but the battles may take many different forms. Listen. There's direct assault with heavy artillery. There's guerrilla warfare where we attack and then we hide. There are border skirmishes where hostile parties sort of toe the line, but there's a passive aggression in that relationship. And then there's all-out war where territory is claimed. Each side has offensive weapons and defensive weapons. Allies are often enlisted, friends, family, even God, right? Lord, he needs the gospel so badly. Would you help him? Help him to see, change him. Strategy is involved in our conflicts. Some people bully with a frontal attack. Others use appeasement or flattery as a sort of Trojan horse. Still others ambush. Unloading their pent-up frustrations seemingly out of nowhere. We use defensive weapons like self-pity and overdone penance. Oh, I guess I'm just a horrible person who can't do anything right. We use silence, denial, rationalization, flattery, pride, and euphemistic labeling. It wasn't an insult, I was just joking. We use deflection. We use comparison. Oh yeah, you think I'm bad? You ought to be married to Jimmy down the street. Uh-huh. Go see how Jimmy will do you, right? Comparison. These are some of the defensive weapons. But we have offensive weapons as well, including anger, guilt tripping, manipulation, control, Judgment and accusation, shaming and mocking. Mm. Grave digging, when you bring up old arguments or old conflicts that you were supposedly, that you supposedly had forgiven, but you dig those things right back up to, because they're useful in your current conflict. Mm -hmm. Innuendo, passive aggressive hinting. The defensive and offensive strategies, listen to me, they can either be conscious or they can be subconscious. And just because you aren't consciously doing this doesn't mean that you aren't doing it. Right, right. Which is another reason why counseling, therapy, and community are such important and healthy things to have in your life, spiritual direction. But when it comes to our desires, they don't remain static. They grow and develop as we feed them. Here's a common progression of desire that I want you to think about and pay attention to in your own life. It starts with, I desire it. I feel like I can't live without it. And then I demand it because I convince myself that I deserve it. 
I expect others to do something. If you love me, you will help me to get what I want. Mm -hmm. Then I grow disappointed with the other when they don't live up to my expectations. We treat others like the source of the problem. And then I discipline that person, whether through the silent treatment or giving them a bad attitude or slandering them to other people or damning them with faint praise when they're not present. Sin, evil. It's grievous. Mm. And then after I discipline them, I distance from them because they've become useless to me. If they're not helping me to get what I want, they're useless to me. I distance from them. And ultimately, I detach from them because they've become an unnecessary distraction in my quest to get what I want. Mm. That's how desires grow. And it's not hard to see how overinflated desire corrupts our relationships and social dynamics in the church. Mm-hmm. But the Apostles' Pathology Report doesn't stop with desire. Take a look at verse 2. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. Mm-hmm. Prayerlessness yeah. is the next item on James's pathology of conflict. Mm-hmm. F.B. Meyer, old school cat, once said that the greatest tragedy in life is not unanswered prayer, but unoffered prayer. And here James says that the tragedy of unoffered prayer is what leads to our conflict with brothers and sisters in the Lord. But you might say, hold on a minute, I pray. I I pray, I I, I do the daily prayer project. I I bring my daily needs before the Lord. I ask the Lord to help me with the things that I got going on in my life. But James continues in verse 3. Take a look. Mm -hmm. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You see, he goes from our overinflated desires to prayerlessness. But sometimes we're praying, but we just pray with an extraordinarily selfish spirit. Mm -hmm. Approaching prayer in a spirit of selfishness. Offering prayers that never rise above the level of self-interest or personal pleasure. Because the the, the language that's used here of desires is where we get the word hedonism. Mm -hmm. It's to please yourself. These desires, getting what I want is about pleasing myself. If such folks do pray for others, it's an afterthought. And we all know it's not wrong to pray for yourself. It's incredibly important to do this, but we're talking about the fundamental posture, the regular mode with which you come to God and how you actually aim your heart and your desires and your longings in prayer. James says, you do not have because you do not ask. And when you do ask, you ask from a place of selfishness and self-interest and self-motivation. That's why you're where you are. James tells them, you have reduced prayer to an exercise in selfish getting, rather than a practice of communion by which the world is blessed and you are transformed. You have transitioned prayer into something debased. So here's a framework for prayer. Just briefly want to hit. I want you to ask yourself the question, who am I coming to as I pray? And who am I becoming as I pray? Mm -hmm. 
If you think about the nature of your prayers, are they stretching you to become a more beautiful expression of God's love for the world and God's care for the world and his interest in the world, his sympathy in, 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 with, his, with his people, his empathy for neighbors? Is, is this who you're becoming in prayer based upon the way you're wrestling with the Lord in prayer? Or is your prayer life all about me, myself, and I? Another diagnostic, and I've said this often in this community, but it bears repeating. Ask yourself this. If I got everything that I prayed for, mm -hmm. what would I actually have? Yeah. If in answering this question, the good and flourishing of your neighbors is nowhere to be found, mm -hmm. if peace in your communion, in your local church, and in your relationships is absent from your prayers then you will inevitably be a source of conflict rather than a peacemaker in community. Mm -hmm. James would encourage us to move beyond the superficiality of short-sighted, narrow-minded concerns for self in our prayers mm. so, that we can, so that we can play a part through prayer and through action and seeing God's community become what it was meant to be. But James lists another element in his pathology of conflict. Take a look at verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The last item on James's pathology list is friendship with the world, or what you would call worldliness. Mm -hmm. Now, the world here is not the physical universe, which is God's creation that he called good. Right. Though it's marred by sin, it is still good. It still maintains its fundamental integrity as good, as creation of God that he delights in. That's not what the world's talking about. World... Is not human beings per se who are made in God's image and who are loved by God. Mm -hmm. World in this context refers to a system of human existence or a way of life that functionally operates as if God didn't exist. Yeah. As if God didn't exist. You're tied up with the data points and the statistics and, and, and the logistics and, 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 and all the things that have to do with pragmatism. God is nowhere to be found. That's worldliness. One example. We might find ourselves stressed out about finances because our bank account isn't full enough to give us a sense of security that we feel we need. Mm -hmm. So we start scheming on how to bring in more money, and our minds are totally preoccupied with scraping more money together. Then one of your children asks for your attention. And you snap at them and you say, Daddy's busy right now. Or your spouse reminds you of something that you forgot to do because your mind was preoccupied with trying to scrape together that money. And when your spouse calls you on it, you say, get off my back. I got a lot going on right now. I got a lot on my mind. And I don't need you on my back. You see? You see the way that this, this works? Nowhere in this figuring, in this example... Do we see God? Th think about it. Think about it. The entire reason you snapped 
is because you were plotting and scheming like a functional atheist who has to carry the weight of the world on your shoulders, who has no heavenly father to provide and no security in Jesus. It's functional atheism. Mm -hmm. This is the apostles' pathology of conflict. Passions that are overinflated, prayerlessness or selfishness in prayer, and worldliness. Mm -hmm. Scratch a conflict, and this is what you will find beneath the surface. Mm -hmm. But James doesn't leave us hopeless or aimless. He moves on to give us the priorities of communion, which brings us to our final point, the, 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 the pathway of communion. Now, James transitions from his pathology of conflict to help us to gain a pathway for communion Beginning with this word of good news, verse 6. But he gives more grace. It was by grace that the Lord called us into his family. But he gives more grace to help us to live like family. It was by grace through faith that the Lord justified us and declared us righteous. But he gives more grace to help us to live as just and righteous people. It was by grace that the Lord atoned for our sins, but he gives more grace to help us to mortify our sins, to kill our sins. You would have given up on cross-cultural community a long time ago, but he gives more grace. You, you, you might have troubled relationships right now, but he gives more grace. We have to have hard conversations in the family of God, but he gives grace. More grace. We struggle to love and connect across lines of difference, but he gives more grace. We will fail and fumble. We will misspeak and misstep, but he gives more grace. We will, we will always find ourselves in the need of God's grace, but we will come to discover that the grace of God is more than a match for the disgrace in us. Your needs are no match for the grace of God. And our needs are no match for the grace of God. For your daily needs, he gives daily grace. For your urgent needs, he gives urgent grace. For your extraordinary needs, he gives extraordinary grace. For your surprising needs, he gives surprising grace. For your parenting needs, he gives parenting grace. For your marital needs, he gives marital grace. He has a specifically tailored grace to pour out on you no matter what your need may be. And he has specifically tailored grace to pour out on us so that we can live life together as the family he always intended us to be. He gives more grace. Grace is the number one export of heaven, and the Lord never suffers supply chain issues. That's good news. Are you facing a scary diagnosis from the doctor? He gives more grace. Have you lost a loved one? He gives more grace. Are you looking for change or relief or hope? He gives more grace. And an important note that I want to make to you is this. There is no such thing as grace. 
It's not a substance. It's not something floating in the ether. Grace is a word describing all that we have, all that we are, all that we do, and all that we will be through union with Christ. It's a way of describing the abundance that is ours in union with Christ. This is the good news of the gospel. The Father gives us the fullness of the Son for peace and love in our community. And how does this gospel of grace emerge and take shape in our relationships? Let's follow out the rest of verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Mm -hmm. Humility mm -hmm. receives the grace yeah. of God. All you need, James is telling us, is your need. In every situation, in every circumstance, in every relationship, in every disagreement, in every conflict, in every misunderstanding, pride is your greatest enemy and humility is your greatest friend because it brings you under the grace of God. You know, I, I once saw a pastor do this illustration where he took a cup and he had this big bottle of water. And he said, this cup can be completely filled by this big water bottle, but only if the cup comes under the water bottle. Mm -hmm. So long as the cup remains above the water bottle, it cannot be filled by the water bottle. Mm -hmm. And what this is an illustration of is the fact that those who walk in pride, mm -hmm. who think they're all that, who are impressed by their own knowledge or education or experience, who think that they always have the right angle and everyone else is missing the boat. Pride will never put you in a situation where the Lord can pour out his fullness into your life. Yeah. But even the most humble believer, even if you're only a thimble, mm. you can carry more of the fullness of God than a big old container, a five-gallon bucket that refuses to come under mm. the supply. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? This is what James is trying to get at. And we all know pride is its seeds are in us. And some of us have been more or less successful in our battle with pride. But James is telling you, he's trying to wake us up. God opposes the proud. Yeah. And he's talking to Christians here. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And what it leads us to see is that God will bring severe discipline into your life if you remain swollen with pride. Mm -hmm. Because he loves you. Mm -hmm. And he knows that pride is killing you. So you can willingly humble yourself before the Lord. Or you can experience that humbling in a different way. Mm -hmm. It's not to make us afraid, but the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Yeah. That's what the Proverbs say. And James is an heir of that tradition. The Jewish sage, James, heir of this tradition. In every situation, pride is your greatest enemy and humility is your greatest friend. One old school cat approached this from a different angle when he said this. He said, they that know God will be humble and they that know themselves cannot be proud. Mm -hmm. You get what he's saying? Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's again, it takes us back 
to really, uh, I mean, it's John Calvin's Institute's book one. At the very beginning, the way you grow in the faith is you got to know God and know yourself. And you, can, you can't really know yourself until you know God. And you can't really know God until you know yourself. You don't know anything about the profundity of God's grace and kindness and love until you realize how wrecked you are. That's when you begin to say, oh, 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 that's what he meant when he said, I'm gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Wow, that gives me a new understanding of who he is. Know yourself to know God, know God to know yourself. James shows us here that pride creates communal wars of destruction, but humility fosters communal peace and flourishing. And James continues to describe, he continues to describe the pathway of communion in verses 7 through 10. Let's finish this out. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Uh, let me hit the rest of this very quickly. In addition to the, the grace of God and humility, the pathway to communion consists of, we see in this, in this passage, submission to God. Now, I literally want you to think submission. Because one of the things that gets us into conflicts with others is that we have our own plans and designs for our life. We're on our own mission, whether it's to build our career or to be impressive in the eyes of others or to make a lot of money or to enjoy a lot of comfort. We have our own mission. But submission says, I'm going to come under the mission of God rather than to pursue my mission. Because when we're all on our own mission, that puts us into conflict with one another. But when we're all in submission to God, we're shoulder to shoulder going in the same direction. You exchange your self-interested mission for God's mission. Submission leads to communion because we're all working from the same playbook, the same sheet music, the same script. However you want to frame it, it puts us on the same page. But it, it takes the grace of humility. Next, resist the devil. Remember this. Your brothers and sisters are not the enemy. Yeah. Your neighbors are not the enemy. Yeah. Ephesians 6 tells us that the battle is not against flesh and blood, yeah. but against the principalities and the powers. And that is a particular reality in what's happening between Russia and Ukraine right now. Yeah. You realize there are dark forces at work that we cannot see. Yeah. And too often we locate the battle the enemy as our neighbor, but we, what we wind up doing is being found guilty of friendly fire. It was never meant to be this way. Resist the devil. Remember, the battle's not against flesh and blood. Next, pathway is communion with God. When we're all drawing near to God, we're drawing near to one another. We're all drawing near toward that center, and God is drawing near to all of us. We are meeting there. This is the great prize of the gospel, restored communion. Because when we draw near to God, it exposes our sin. It exposes our selfishness. But it also exposes his redeeming love and his transforming power. And when we are all drawing near to God and being exposed and confessing and acknowledging our sins and receiving his grace for renewal, 
Well, then we're able to live in peace in a different kind of way. Next, repentance. You see this in the text when he says, when he says in this text, take a look at it. Let your laugh be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. What he's talking about is that classic expression of repentance where, where back in the day in Jewish culture, what they would do is they would tear their garments as a sign that their hearts were broken over the sin or over the evil that was within and without. Mm-hmm. And so this call to be wretched and mourn, to weep, is a call to repentance. Mm-hmm. And I love our confessional documents, our church's confessional documents, the Westminster Confession of Faith. This is what it says about repentance. It says that we're not to content ourselves with a general repentance. Lord, forgive my sin. You know, Lord, just take care of it all, Lord. No, our confessional documents say this, that we are to repent of particular sins, particularly. That's what repentance looks like. Mm -hmm. Listen, God was justly angered at our rebellion, but God is never angry at our return. I want you to remember that Jesus gave us the parable of the lost sons, the one who went off on his own. He gave us that parable so that ever and always, when we find ourselves in the pig pen, when we find ourselves wandered away from God, whether that wandering looks like moral carelessness or conflict with our brothers and sisters, when we find ourselves in the pig pen, Jesus gave us that story to remind us that the Father always stands looking, ready to welcome us home so that he can clean us up, so that he can put a ring on our finger, so that he can throw a feast for us and restore us to communion. James has subtly highlighted that fact that our battle is not with our brothers and sisters. It's with, did you notice in the text? The world, the flesh, and the devil. It's right here in the text. He starts with the flesh. Then he talks about the world. He hits the devil. This is where the real battle lies. And this is where we have to do business if we would be a community marked by peace rather than petty strife, arguments, bickering, battling. And, and I want to say to you that I am deeply encouraged as a general big picture about the, the culture of our church. I actually think this is a point of grace that I've witnessed in our community. So I want to encourage you. But if you have beef with someone, you need to work it out. This is this is the crucible of your growth and your discipleship right now. Mm-hmm. The pathway to communion with one another is paved with the grace of God, with humility, with resistance to the devil, communion with God, and repentance. And we must remember that those great words of theologian Christine Pohl, when she said the greatest testimony to the truth of the gospel is the quality of our life together. That's the greatest witness, the greatest testimony is how we live together in mutuality and love. Let's be about that life. Let us pray for the grace to be both hearers and doers of the word. Remembering that a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Amen. Let's pray.
Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.